This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. There were people like Thomas Bradwardine and Gregory of Rimini who had a very strong doctrine, uh, very strong Augustinian doctrine. Let me just elaborate here just for a moment. Now, what's interesting, particularly about Gregory of Remini, and he's the person who's received most of the attention of scholars in the last 10 or 15 years, and what makes him so terribly interesting is that he was the official theologian of the Augustinian order to which Martin Luther belonged. The thought, the speculation, it's hard to know exactly what all this means. But they were called the Augustinian Hermits. The Augustinian Hermits. And in the 14th century, Gregory of Rimini was the El Supremo theologian of this order. A couple hundred years later, we're talking Gregory of Rimini now. Bradwardine was, was an Englishman. Gregory of Rimini was an Italian uh, who, who uh, was a major theologian in the 14th century. Yes? Gregory's dates. I think he died in uh, 1378. I don't have the dates with me. I think that's just a... That's close enough. We're talking 14th century. Both cases. Uh and just as, you know, a Dominican tended to propagate the views of Thomas Aquinas or a Franciscan tended to propagate the views of Duns Scotus, so the Augustinian order tended more or less to promote the ideas of Gregory. Uh, and we scholars have identified a little bit of a tradition uh, that there were, were students of Gregory all the way down through to the 16th century, to the late 15th, early 16th century. And we do know, for example, that Luther read Gregory of Remini. He cites Gregory in the Leipzig Disputation. It says, of all the scholastics, he's the only one who has any sense at all. Uh, let me just mention some of the distinctive ideas of Gregory of Remini. Uh, that are so intense and so interesting and provocative for people interested in the Reformation and its connection, its late medieval context, but the connection between Gregory and the Reformation. Uh, incidentally, the, the man who pioneered uh, this kind of research between Gregory of Remini and the Reformation, Luther in particular, is, is Heiko Obermann, who probably is uh, the single most important Reformation theologian today. Anyway... <clears throat> Gregory of Remini was very uh, active in the recovery of the genuine uh, Augustinian corpus of writings. What had happened in the early part of the Middle Ages is that there were some writings circulating under the name of Augustine that were not Augustine's. 
and they promoted a theology very different from his. And one of the things, because of his intense devotion to Augustine, Gregory uh, began developing techniques and ways to distinguish the true Augustine from the false. And one of the particular area of Augustine's writings that were of great interest to Gregory were his anti-Pelagian writings. And those uh, weigh heavily upon Gregory. Having read, having recovered the genuine Augustine, or, or played a big role in that, he became a devout anti-Pelagian. And he spends his entire academic career uh, fighting against Pelagianism as he sees it in the church. Some of the things he believed in very, very strongly, a very strong view of original sin. It was as strong as Augustine himself. Secondly, he affirmed the authority of Scripture in a way more, uh, more strongly than most of his contemporaries. He believed in the primacy of grace in salvation. He believed and he taught that salvation is a matter of God's grace alone. We have a sola gratia already in the 14th century in the teachings of Gregory of Rimini. He taught the strongest doctrine of double predestination you can imagine. He had, uh, Calvin had nothing on him when it comes to double predestination. So there is some question among scholars as to whether or not there is a link between this Scola Augustiniana Moderna of Gregory of Remini, perhaps Brad Werdine there someplace. If that's somehow within this particular order <coughs> that somehow gave birth to a Luther. It's all speculation. There's an enormous amount of debate, uh, but it's terribly interesting. Uh, I just want to let you know that there... that. The scholastic period uh, was not all this dry and, and, and uh, arid kind, kind of theology, but there was a, a real revival, at least in some segments of the church, a real revival of true Augustinianism, a, a real stress on the grace of God in salvation, and a, and a hatred, a burning hatred of Pelagian tendencies that they observed in the church in their day. So, you need to know about that, that it existed. So, that's another side, another element of what we can call scholasticism because this, this movement, this sub-movement, uh, is a scholastic movement by and large. Renaissance humanism. Now, when I use the word humanism, I need to stop for a moment and ask everybody to look up here for a second. Now, whatever you think about the word humanism, throw it out. Forget it. Excise it. It doesn't apply when it comes to what I call Renaissance humanism. When we think of humanism in this period of time in the 20th century, we think of secular humanism, uh, a view that tends to exalt the dignity of man without reference to God. That's what we think of when we think of the term humanism or secular humanism, some sort of anti-religious philosophy. Uh, and that's appropriate for this period of time, uh, the 20th century. But when you're talking back in the 
15th, early 16th century, you're talking about a, an intellectual movement that was profoundly religious in its orientation. There was a deep desire among many humanists, not all, but many humanists, for renewal in the church. So it's not anti-Christian. It's not anti-church, per se. It's pro, generally speaking, pro-reform of the church. And the fact of the matter is, is that virtually every one of the early Protestants were either at one point humanists or had some appreciation of humanists. I mean, Calvin, if you want to understand him rightly, one has to understand that he was trained as a French humanist. One of these kinds of humanists I'm talking about, not a secular humanist. And he never abandoned that. That's a very important part of his intellectual development. So, make sure that you understand that when I'm talking about humanism, it is a very different animal than the secular humanism that we hear about today. Now, this is a, another very complicated historical movement. The one view that has become dominant is that of Paul Christeller. Do I have that name up there? Christeller, K-R-I-S-T-E-L-L-E-R. Yeah, not there yet. Anyway, uh, he defines Renaissance humanism this way. This is, what, again, one of those things you want to circle in red, put a star by it. Humanism is, quote, a cultural and educational movement. A cultural and educational movement which placed emphasis upon eloquence, And it appealed to classical antiquity as the ultimate model of eloquence. Cultural and educational movement which placed emphasis upon eloquence and appealed to classical antiquity as the ultimate model of eloquence. Now, when I say eloquence, I, I, I think you probably have in your mind something, you know, pretty speech, flowery language. Well, when you think of eloquence, do it again? Okay. Okay. Cultural and educational movement which emphasized eloquence and appeal to classical antiquity as the ultimate model of eloquence. Back to eloquence. Uh, eloquence, particularly in antiquity, was, was more than just flowery language. It was language that was intended to move hearts and minds to action. It's not just speaking well, but there's, there's almost a moral element to it. To move people to, to noble action is part of what's behind this. Now, this Renaissance humanism uh, doesn't specifically embrace any particular morality. It can be used uh, to serve any number of purposes. Uh, the general idea is that it's concerned with how ideas were obtained and expressed rather than with the substance of any particular idea. And that's why a humanist could be either an Aristotelian philosophically or a Platonist philosophically. The great phrase of the humanists was ad fontes. It's the last one up here. Ad fontes. To the fount. 
to the beginning, to the source, is the idea there. And in a sense, I'm very much of, of a humanist because I want us to go back to the original sources, the primary sources in our reading. Well, that's what the Renaissance humanists were all about. That, that phrase, go back to antiquity, go back to the original sources and let them serve as models for us, that basic idea. Now, they generally wanted to sidestep all the secondary sources that is, the medieval commentators, the medieval theologians. What they would do is they would write commentaries on commentaries and commentaries on commentaries of commentaries. And all the while you're getting further and further removed from the original source. And the humanists said, let's just sidestep all those commentaries and go straight back to Seneca or Cicero or whomever. Now, that's a more general quick picture of Renaissance humanism. It had a tremendous impact throughout Europe. And you find that there is this, this, this natural animosity between these new humanists and these old scholastics. But humanism underwent a little bit of a further development. When we speak of Renaissance humanism, we're generally talking about that humanism that is particularly associated with Italy. Renaissance, rebirth of learning, Italy, all goes together. But there is another humanism, which we call Northern Humanism. And it's called Northern Humanism because it's a humanism that is north of Italy, north of the Alps. And it takes on, in some ways, a, a little bit of a different flavor. I'll tell you. Now, the Northern Humanist shared with his Italian counterpart the same concern for eloquence modeled on classical antiquity. But the Northern Humanists were much more concerned to go ad fontes back, not only to the classics, classic philosophers, but to go back to the early church fathers and to the original writings of the New Testament and Old Testament to the Greek and to the Hebrew. So for them, uh, ad fontes meant an, a great appreciation for the classical writers, but even more it meant an appreciation of what was the original uh, writings of the New Testament, uh, a renewal of interest in, the, in, in Greek and Hebrew, a desire to go back to the early church and the early church fathers and use them as a model for reforming the church of their day. So the northern humanists now uh, take the ad fontes idea a step further. Instead of going, instead of like the Renaissance humanists who sought to use classical antiquity to come forward as models of eloquence and maybe morality, what you find among the northern humanists, by and large, is more of a tendency to use the early church as a model for reforming the church. Do you disagree with scholasticism when it came to uh, rational processes? Yes, they did, by and large. I mean, you, yes. You look at the writings of any number of the humanists. Uh, let's look at Calvin. Do you think Calvin is logical? Okay, well, that's a good example of, of a logical humanist. Uh, no, humanism is not antithetical to rationality. 
there's a different appreciation perhaps than that. Uh, and there's a different agenda. Now, I don't want to complicate matters too much here, but but uh, Renaissance humanism, that in Italy, that we do find some evidences of some of the Italian humanists who are also concerned about religious church reform. Uh, that's not given quite as much emphasis, it's not quite as pervasive, but you do find inklings of that as well. But to make it simple, uh, we'll just, I'll just let you know that northern humanism is normally associated much more with the idea of church reform. Going back ad fontes to the fount, to the beginning, recalling what Augustine and the early church fathers said, and bringing that to bear upon the church of their day to reform it. Now, I, I suspect that some of you are wondering what's the difference between that kind of idea and the Scola Augustiniana Moderna. Uh, there are some differences, but there are also some overlap. Uh, because these guys felt their church needed to be reformed as well. It was too Pelagian. And where they go? They went ad fontes, back to Augustine in particular. The basic difference is that they saw one church father as the means of reforming the church. Uh, the Italian, the nor excuse me, the northern humanists felt there were a whole group of people that go back to, including Jerome and, as well as Augustine and others, to help reform the church in their day. Well, one way to illustrate the importance of this last movement, the, the, the northern humanist, in terms of its importance for the Reformation, centers on one particular episode that occurred in the early 16th century. It's called the Reuchlin Affair, R-E-U-C-H-L-I-N. At least that's what I call it, the Reuchlin Affair. Johann Reuchlin dates 1455 to 1522. 1455 to 1522. He was one of the most famous humanists in all of Europe in the early 16th century. Reuchlin, incidentally, was the uncle of Philip Melanchthon, uh, Luther's right-hand man. Reuchlin has such distinguished accomplishments as reliable Hebrew grammar, uh, rudimenta hebraica, in the early 16th century. And of course, this grammar itself was helpful in the revival of interest in the Hebrew language for biblical studies. So, he's a very distinguished individual. Reuchlin is important to understand the relationship of this particular intellectual movement, namely Northern Humanism, and its relationship to the Reformation. Reuchlin became involved in a major controversy at a crucial point in the early stages of the Reformation, which helped the Reformation. It helped Luther gain credibility, intellectual credibility. The controversy in which he became involved, that is Reuchlin, was a controversy which sort of pitted the old scholasticism against the new humanism. Reuchlin's opponent in this controversy was a converted Jew, a Dominican priest, who had become a Dominican priest, and his name was Pfefferkorn. 
I don't have that on there. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Pfeffercorn. It's hard to say. No. Anyway, Pfeffercorn, having been converted to Christianity, believed uh, very, very passionately that all Hebrew books should be confiscated and taken away because he feared that such books would promote blasphemy. The Jews, after all, killed Christ. And he is now someone who has turned his back very strongly on his Jewish heritage, and he bought into some of those kinds of ways of thinking that Hebrew language was, was a dangerous thing, and it, it might end up leading people to denying Christ. Pfefferkorn did not like Roycland's interest in the Kabbalah. C-A-B-A-L-A. -A -A. That's a book of Jewish mysticism. And he felt, Pfefferkorn did, that by encouraging or engaging in his own study of this book, that uh, he was in effect blaspheming against Christ. So anything... Hebrew to Pfefferkorn held out the potential for ridicule or blaspheming of Christ. So Pfefferkorn wasn't real keen when Roycklin published this Hebrew grammar. For him, that was a dangerous book and should not be out there, should not be made available. And so Pfefferkorn began to raise objections to Roycklin. And what Pfefferkorn, the Dominican priest, did is he took, he raised some objections and he took them to one of the famous theological faculties in Europe at the University of Cologne. C-O-L-O-G-N-E. Now it just so happened that Cologne was a bastion for Dominicans. And Pfefferkorn went to his old buddies and said, I think this guy, Roycklin, is dangerous. Uh, and the works, the writings that he is putting out hold out the potential for blaspheming Christ. What do you think? Well, they all very quickly agreed with Pfefferkorn. So in 1514, Roycklin, one of the preeminent humanists, was charged with heresy and brought to trial for having published a Hebrew grammar and written some other Hebrew books primarily. 1514, still before the Reformation really got underway. Initially, interestingly enough, Roycklin was acquitted in this first stage of the controversy. But Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans were not to be deterred. They continued to raise objections to Roycklin and they appealed to Rome to render a judgment. The controversy dragged on for five, six years until 1520. And in 1520, Roycklin was found guilty, condemned, and would have faced death had he not recanted, which he did in 1520, died a couple of years later. Now, here's the key. Between 1514 and 1520, the Renaissance humanists throughout Europe rallied around and began to support Roycklin. Now, they were not in quite the same positions of power as were the scholastics, but they rallied around him. 
And the humanists saw this controversy as an attempt by the old scholasticism to destroy the new learning, this humanist, this humanism. A little side point here. In the early stages of the controversy, Roitlin had written a book entitled Letters of Famous Men. And what Roitlin was trying to do is he put together a series of letters written by some distinguished humanist scholars. And they all said, Roitlin's a great guy. He's not a blasphemer. What he's doing is okay. So he put this book out, this comp compilation of letters singing his praises and validating his, his intentions. The following year, in 1515, two friends of Reuchlin, uh, Ulrich von Hutten, H-U-T-T-E-N, and Rubianus, R-U-B-I-A-N-U-S, published another book with a very similar title, entitled Letters of Obscure Men. The two books were Letters of Famous Men, 1514, compiled by Reuchlin himself. And in 1515, two friends, Rubianus and Hutton, published another book with this title, Letters of Obscure Men. Now, what's interesting about this latter book is that these two friends, Rubianus and Hutton, presented the book ostensibly as if it were a defense of Pfefferkorn. But in reality, it was a book to ridicule Pfefferkorn and to mock him. And the letters in it were letters of obscure men, people who had no credibility. And it's those kinds of people who had no credibility and no learning. Those are the kinds of people who are supporting Pfefferkorn, according to this book. That's the, that's the, the uh, satire involved. And it poked fun at all of these uh, scholastics. So, the point is, is that on the eve of the Reformation, all of Europe is laughing at the scholastics. The scholastics have been painted as buffoons by this book, Letters of Obscure Men. It was enormously popular. And so the lay people, a lot of the intellectual circles, there is this... this picture of the scholastics as a bunch of goofs. And it's just at this point when Luther emerges in Germany that he is first identified as a friend of Reuchlin. And automatically Luther has a great deal of credibility by virtue of the association between Luther and Reuchlin. Luther is perceived as another humanist. And so he has, at least in many circles, in the humanist circles, they are all throwing their support to Luther. And some of those humanists are in important positions and carry a lot of weight. So the humanist movement was absolutely crucial to Luther in those early years because he had academic credibility. He was thought to be another humanist who was even more bold than Reuchlin, that he was dealing with the question of theology in a more forceful way. 
One interesting little tidbit here is that Martin Bucer, the famous reformer of Strasbourg, he heard Luther speak at a conference in about 1518, 1519. And Bucer, who was himself very much of a humanist, when he heard Luther speak, he said, another humanist! And the interesting thing is, is that Bucer didn't understand really what Luther was getting at, but he was perceived that way. Now, we don't discover until 1525, when Luther writes his book, the one that you just read, Against Erasmus on Free Will. It's at that point that the humanists realize that Luther is not really one of them. Because many of the humanists, most of the humanists, still believed in some spark of vitality in the human will. They were not, by and large, strong Augustinians. Some more than others, but by and large, it was not a movement that stressed a strong soteriolo an Augustinian soteriology. And it's only in 1525 that the humanists suddenly realized Luther is not who we thought he was. But in that, that window of opportunity from 1517 to 1525, Luther, uh, part of Luther's popularity was spread by the humanist community. And he was sort of seen as one of their great leaders. So that was very, very crucial in the early stages. I think there was a couple of questions. Uh, Dave? Yes, uh, 1514 letters of famous men by Roy Hutton. Yes. And then the two guys? Rubianus and Hutton. H-U-T-T-E-N. Yeah. yeah. Were the guys who wrote the book uh, letters of obscure men. There's meant to be sort of a pun there. Fifteen fifteen was the second book. Fifteen fourteen was the first. Fifteen fifteen the second. Steve. Well, I think you sort of answered the question. Luther uh, did talk of, about Aquinas and seemed to adopt somewhat of the scholastic um, thinking. Well, Luther Luther was trained as a scholastic. And uh, I, I think that, that one might argue that in some ways he was very much of a scholastic. Luther is terribly interesting. I mean, he's got lots of different forces that he appropriates to serve his purposes. I mean, when he writes about paradoxes the way he does, that's not very scholastic. He moves beyond that in many respects. But in other respects, uh, I think in his view of, of the Lord's Supper, his view of consubstantiation, that's really kind of a... Uh, going back, a medieval sort of, of way of looking at things. It involves all kinds of medieval assumptions. So Luther is sort of sitting on the edge between medieval scholasticism and, and something new. Now, of course, he was very much involved in, in humanistic kinds of ideas because one of the other hallmarks of humanism is a translation of works in the language of the people. So... He, and he very much appropriated the work of Erasmus in doing that translation, that German translation. So Luther is doing a little bit of humanism over here and a little bit of, of scholasticism. All those things are combining in him to do something new and different. But being identified with the humanists gave him the credibility. Early on, that's right. They, in 1525, almost, almost wholesale uh, rejection of Luther by the humanists. When Luther rejected and, and fought against Erasmus, who was the prince of the humanists. Uh, that, at that point, 
then he was very much distinct from the, the humanists. Uh, now, some of the younger humanists uh, did sort of attach themselves to Luther and maintain, like people like Philip Melanchthon, who was very much uh, of a well-known young humanist, and he became involved with Luther at Wittenberg and became his right-hand man. So there were some. The way you describe the Northern Humanist movement, it sounds like Luther, though, was the consummate Northern Humanist in that um, he went back to the original writings of the Old New Testament and early church fathers. So Very much so. So I don't really see why there would be a surprise in connecting Luther with the Humanist. Well, the, the reason that I have some hesitation there is because his training was as a scholastic. Right. So that's very different. And you do see some evidences of, of, a, of a lingering sort of scholasticism at certain points in his theology. I mean, I guess one of the preeminent examples of that is in his view of the Lord's Supper, because he involves all kinds of, of uh, very medieval scholastic assumptions in that view. Do they seem as a defector then? Yes, absolutely. You see, the, the Northern Humanists, for all of their efforts and desire for reform in the church, were not prepared to leave it. Okay? So these people wanted reform from within. Luther, it wants to knock it down. He says that the problems are doctrinal. They are not merely moral. Luther, Frank... He was not in the first place concerned about morality or the immorality of the clergy. That's not to say that he promoted immorality, but that's not the first concern. His first concern was doctrine, and the theological foundations of the medieval church were rotten as far as he was concerned. And they had missed the boat, and so he says, we've got to, we've got to get this right doctrine in here. And that separates him from the northern humanists in a very profound way. Okay, let me, I've got about seven minutes. Let me just say a word about Erasmus. Uh, I've already alluded to him. His dates are 1466 to 1536. 1466 to 1536. As I mentioned, Erasmus is called the Prince of the Humanists, uh, principally associated with Northern Humanism. He was born near Rotterdam, the son, the illegitimate son of a Dutch priest. Uh, he studied at the University of Paris. He then went to England where he was at Cambridge and at Oxford. And while in England, he encountered a, a man named John Collett. C-O-L-E-T. If I take the time to spell it, you would be wise to write it down. Collett. C-O-L-E-T. John Collett. A very devout uh, priest in England who was very concerned about Bible studies and, and biblical studies in general. And it's Collett who seems to have taken this very, and by this time Erasmus is already, even though he's a young man, still a very uh, prominent uh, humanist and scholar. Uh, and Collett says, hey, you know, you, you have all these talents and these abilities with languages and with so forth. Why don't you turn your attention to the Bible? And Erasmus is so overwhelmed by the, by the presence of John Collett that he says, you're right, I ought to be doing that. I am a Christian after all. I ought to be concerned about the reform of the church because I can see, like everybody else, that there's serious, serious problems in the church. And so it was 
that Erasmus then turned the last 20 or so years, 25 years of his life, to concerns about the church. Erasmus was probably the first best-selling author in modern history. His book, The Praise of Folly, went through 600 editions. Erasmus is very interesting. Uh, He has become rejected by Catholics and rejected by Protestants. For the Catholics, he was considered too Protestant, and for the Protestants, he's considered too Catholic. He's a very intriguing guy. He certainly never left the church. That was a, a very deliberate decision on his part. But he was also a very, very vocal opponent of the kinds of things that he saw going on in the Catholic Church. He hated monasticism. He felt that was, that was wrong. And particularly this idea that those people, that's how you got closer to God, that's how you could ensure that you would eventually get to heaven is by becoming a monk. He very much dismissed all of that. He was very strong, and he, and he, strong against uh, this, this uh, frivolous kind of Christianity, this superstitious ideas of pilgrimages and relics. He said, that's all garbage. He stressed internal piety. He says that our lives ought to reflect that of Christ. He believed in the imitation of Christ. He believed in a more simple religion, one that was not so complicated with all these this penance and all of this complicated sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church and this intermediary of a priest and all of that. He really... While he didn't come out and, and openly reject all of that, he clearly did suggest and push for a much more simple, a more primitive kind of Christianity, one that modeled itself on the early church. Uh, one sees something of his piety, and I, I think this is really one of the, the, the most significant books. It's one of those great Christian classics. In 1501, Erasmus wrote a book called The Encridian which means a handbook. It's a handbook for Christianity. And in this book, he is basically addressing the question, how to live the Christian life. And it's really warm and endearing and and focuses on the the importance of Bible study. Uh, Really, a lot of good Protestant-like ideas and and that that preceded Luther by 20 years. Uh, At any rate, uh, I think and so do a lot of others, that if you're talking about great Christian classics up there with the Confessions and the Summa and the Institutes, uh, I would probably include the Encridian. You probably won't agree with everything in that particular writing, and nobody asks you to. But it is still uh, a significant and influential book. And I would think that any educated person uh, should have read it at some point in their life. I encourage you. Uh, at any rate, Erasmus is, is, is really crucial in this early period because early on, again, just like Reuchlin, Luther is perceived to be an intellectual ally to Erasmus. Erasmus, who has sort of, in a more subtle way, through literary uh, works, has slammed the papacy, 
criticized its immorality and its superstitiousness, uh, its, its, its lack of emphasis on Scripture. In all of these things, Erasmus preceded Luther. And Luther, in fact, Erasmus himself felt throughout his life that Luther really didn't say much that Erasmus had not already said before. And he kind of felt, he felt a little funny about that, that Luther was getting all this credit for doing something new when Erasmus felt he'd really started the whole thing in the beginning anyway. Uh, again, Erasmus and the movement that sort of centered around Erasmus gave credibility to Luther when he needed it. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.